You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Everybody said, amen. Amen. I want you guys to have a seat. Check out the screen. I called the police department. I didn't know. Hey, Sam, what's going on? Hey, Sam, what's going on? Hey, Sam, what's going on? Oh Man, any of y'all get to see that like with your own with your own eyeballs yesterday? Okay, nobody. But y'all see, have y'all seen that video? Like that was UNT yesterday. That was crazy. Yesterday will forever go down as the day that a dumpster went floating through the UNT campus. Uh, man, that was just that was nuts. And uh, so I was looking for this video earlier because I wanted to show it tonight. Uh, and um, actually, before I saw this video, I came on across them. Did you know like this video has a music video version of it up online already? Uh, let's go and show that video. Make them away downtown, walking fast, faces passing and homebound. saw that and I started laughing really hard. Uh, and then I saw, you know, I, I don't know if y'all have seen this picture. Uh, Matt Morkecho, one of my interns, sent this to me. I don't think this is his. I think he yanked it offline somewhere, but that was, anybody see that? Was that, okay, yeah. Priest, that was by y'all's dorm, right? You were in that building. What building was that? The GAB. Oh man, a bunch of acronyms flying at me. Uh, Man, that's crazy. So I, was, I saw this and I, a couple years ago, by a couple, I mean like five, six years ago in Lubbock when I was out there, uh, it rained really hard. And, uh, and so Lubbock has like no drainage system and it can't handle any sort of rain. And so if it just like sprinkles, it floods. But it was like for real downpour and, uh, and all of like everything was flooded. And I was on university, which not here in Denton, in Lubbock, uh, runs right by Texas Tech University. Like you can see the campus is on one side. And, uh, and, and I'm, on, I'm, I'm sitting in traffic, and no joke, the water is getting so high that if I had opened my door, it was probably high enough to where it would have started coming in my car. And I'm sitting there, nobody's moving in front of me, and there's a lane open next to me, and I look over to my window next to me, and I see this student floating down university in an inner tube <laughs> in traffic, 
And uh, he's just sitting there holding like a Dr. Pepper. I, I assume it was, we'll just say it was a Dr. Pepper. And uh, he's just floating and he, he sees me and he, uh, he just gives a big old smile and just goes and uh, <laughs> keeps on going. It was the coolest thing ever. Um, yeah. So yesterday was crazy, the flood at UNT. Um, but going back to yesterday, and you may call me crazy or, or, or whatever for thinking this, but I saw the video and, and then I saw that picture and just the force of the water and the force of the water moving that dumpster. And, and, and my mind, just as I was thinking through this last night, my mind just goes to, wow, what an incredible picture of Jesus and his love. What an incredible picture of God's grace flowing through Jesus. It's not just a drizzle, it's a downpour. It's not just a trickle, it's a forceful flow. Uh, did you try to walk up those stairs, Preach? Oh, okay, well, <laughs> cool. Uh, listen, listen, Jesus' love, it's not just a trickle, it's a forceful flow. It's not just a slow drip, it's a waterfall. Jesus' love is a flood of dumpster-moving grace. And I'm serious, listen, listen, God's love, which is displayed for us in him sending Jesus, his son, to the earth to die on the cross for our sins, and he didn't stay dead, dead powerfully, he was raised from the dead after being buried for like three days God's love, which is displayed for us in Jesus, has the power to pick up and move your dumpster full of all of your junk, all of your drunken nights, all of your sex partners, all of your bad decisions, all of your hurtful uh, conversations, all of your broken relationships, all of your lies, all of the just laundry list, dumpster full, dumpster load of junk, and he has the power to move them out of the way, and just like we saw in the video, move them out of the picture. This is the driving force that is behind everything in this book that we study here night after night. This is the driving force from Genesis to Revelation. And I know we're in Exodus right now. Like historically, in Exodus, Jesus hadn't showed up yet. We're talking years until Jesus shows up. But even in everything that we see in Exodus, that's the driving force behind what God is doing in Exodus. This is the driving force. God's powerful, dumpster-moving love is the force behind what we see tonight in Exodus chapter 32, which is where we're going to be. And, and so last week, we covered a lot of ground. We went from Exodus 20 to Exodus 31. And let me just first of all apologize uh, for how long I went last week, um, especially this time of year, which let me just say this. I love this time of year because um, it always shrinks down this time of year. Uh, but I love this time of year because I know that the people who are here really want to be here uh, with all the different things that are going on in your life right now and in school and just the fatigue setting in and senior, senioritis, sophomore, senioritis is setting in. Uh, like if you're here, you want to be here. And, and I'm not saying I don't love the fall and earlier in the spring when this place is just packed. Uh, but I love this time because I know I have a captive audience. And more importantly, I know God has a captive audience and what he wants to say to you tonight um, and, and plus the fact that you came back after last week's like marathon of a sermon, uh, it tells me you want to be here, which is incredible. Um, also last week, uh, uh, I, I want to apologize also for how discombobulated I feel like the message was last week and hopefully the Lord used it anyways. And then last thing, somebody told me that I said last week that we're studying Leviticus in the fall. Did I say that? Okay. I did not mean that. That, that, scare, that scares me as to what else I said last week and didn't realize that I said, but we're not studying Leviticus in the fall, so that's a rumor, don't believe it. Um, but we covered a lot of ground, Exodus 20 to 31, and the meat of last week, we started in Exodus 20, which is where the Ten Commandments are. Evan Jones, they're not in Matthew. I know you filled that out on your survey last week. 
the Ten Commandments, they're in Exodus 20. That's where we started. And the Ten Commandments, listen, they're, the Ten Commandments aren't so much about you as they are about who God is. The meat of last week was the Ten Commandments aren't so much about you as they are about who God is. The Ten Commandments aren't so much about you obeying God, but about you realizing how holy God is. And what we saw last week is the law which God reveals to Moses and gives to Moses and Israel and essentially to us through Exodus chapter 20 through 31 as, as well as Leviticus. The law that God reveals, it, it, uh, it was put in place, we saw this last week, to help us understand how badly we need Jesus. And the law that he gives us, which includes the Ten Commandments and more, the whole sacrificial law that we talked about last week, it helps us understand how badly we need Jesus because it helps us see how unattainably holy God is. And so tonight, this is where we pick up Exodus, Exodus 32. To give you a little bit of context, if you were to look at Exodus 24, 18, it says that Moses, he goes up on Mount Sinai and he's there for 40 days. Um, which, little side note here, uh, I hope later on you'll go and look at Exodus uh, 24, verses 3 through 8. Incredible story what happens here. God, he confirms or, or re, renews his covenant with Israel in those like five verses there. And it's really cool the way he does it. It just, again, it foreshadows, it shows that hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the scene, he's already preparing the way for Jesus. He has Moses go and make these sacrifices to kind of renew this covenant. And then he tells Moses to do a couple of things. But the last thing he asks Moses to do is to take the blood from the sacrifice, call the people forward, and then start spraying the blood or throwing the blood on them, covering with the blood, covering them with the blood. I mean, can you see in Exodus... Long before Jesus shows up, the foreshadowing that is there. And, and again, I'm sure Moses and the people are thinking, ooh, 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 why are you throwing blood on me like that? What's the purpose of this? And Moses is like, this is fun, but also weird. And they don't understand what's happening, but, but Jesus, or God, and Jesus all throughout this, like long before he even shows up on the scene, he's setting the stage for what he was going to do when Jesus showed up. And, and, and the gospel is this, that our sins can be covered by the blood of Jesus because the penalty for sin is blood, like death. Shedding of blood. Leviticus 17.11 says that the life of an animal is in its blood. That's why animals had to be sacrificed for sins. That's why something has to be sacrificed for sins. We're seeing in Exodus 24, 3-8, the foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus would come, shed his blood, so that his blood could be the substitute for our blood, could cover our sins, so that we could put our faith in him, receive that gift from him, and not have to pay the penalty of our sins. Which is not just physical death, but dying and going to hell. So that's what we see there. In, in Exodus 32, we pick up, Moses is now, he's been on Mount Sinai with God for 40 days, which means Israel has been waiting for Moses, not knowing what's going on, don't know if he's been consumed by this fire that's up on the mountain. They're waiting for him for 40 days. And, and as they're waiting for 40 days, they begin to get impatient. And what happens when you get impatient? I mean, when you get impatient, you start to... Uh, I don't know, you start to uh, take things into your own hands. And when you, because of your impatience, begin to take things into your own hands, what happens? Bad things. Bad things. Like road rage stuff happens. You know, you get impatient. In fact, not too long ago, I, I may have shared this story before with you, but uh, it was about a year ago. I'm on Carroll and uh, driving down Carroll towards Fort Worth Drive. And I guess I was going too slow because this car behind me, I think it was a white SUV, um, it, it, it was right up on my bumper. It pulls around me, which I don't drive that slow. Okay. Pulls up around me and then get, you know, cuts me off like in front of me and, and, uh, speeds down in front of me. But the whole way he wrote the guy in the passenger seat rolls down his window and, uh, I'm not going to do it, but he, uh, just held his middle finger 
out the window, like the whole way down Carroll. Like I'm, I'm, as far as I could see him, his middle finger is still <laughs> out the window. And I'm like, well, cool. And, uh, but what he didn't think about, bad decision, what he didn't think about is there's stoplights on Carol. And so he's in, he now gets into the left lane. I'm in the middle lane. And uh, the light turns red in front of us. And there's like two cars at the light in front of him. There's no cars in front of me. But I pulled up and stopped next to him instead of going all the way up to the line. And his window was still down because his finger was still out the window, not realizing that now I'm right next to him. And so I rolled down my window and uh, I said, hey, man, uh, you guys looking for a cool church? Because I know of a great college ministry. You look, you look like college students. And uh, he immediately goes like this. And, um, and then these guys in the back rolled down the window. It was a car full of dudes. And I was like, hey, what's up, guys? And uh, I was like, you guys need a church? And uh, I was like, I know of a great college ministry. I pulled out some overflow cards and tossed them in the car. And then <laughs> the uh, light turned green and they were all blood red and embarrassment. It was awesome. But impatience, they're, they're, the, the, the Israelites, they're getting impatient. And, and because of that, they, they wanted to go to the promised land. Remember, they'd been promised this place where they were going to go and everything was going to be great. And, and so they're getting antsy for that, getting impatient for that. They're tired of waiting. And as they get tired of waiting, they begin to forget about God's plan. I mean, in their minds, they're just saying, forget God. Like, forget his plan, forget his way. Let's just get on with his journey. And so that's when we pick up in Exodus 32.1, and it says this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now let me explain what I think is happening here. The people, they're getting impatient, so they started talking. Probably, my guess is around like day 20, day 25, somewhere in that range. Uh, Moses has been gone now for like two weeks, wait, three weeks. And uh, they're sitting there just grumbling and like, man, where is he? Uh, and and they, they start to complain, and as they complain, they start to come up with their own, you know, super expert opinions on how this journey to the promised land should be run. So they're sitting there saying things like, man, this is such a waste of time for us to sit at the bottom of this mountain when we could be headed towards the promised land. And look, the promised land wasn't that far away. Like, it wasn't that long of a journey. All this time they'd been sitting there, they could have been almost to the promised land by then. And that's what they're saying. And so what I think happens here is they get together some of the elders, some of the, you know, the older, more respectable dudes of the Israelites, and they're all talking about this. And so these elders then, uh, they get together on behalf of all of the Israelites, and they go, they gather together, as it says, to Aaron. But when it says gather together to Aaron, what I think that really means is they gather together against Aaron. Like they cornered Aaron. They bowed up against Aaron. Like they, they, they used their notoriety that they had among all of the Israelite people, which we know there's at least a million, probably more. They used that notoriety that they had among all the Israelites to intimidate Aaron. And then they basically said this, dude, look, if you don't take our suggestion from here, um, you're going to have a, a, a riot on your hands. You're going to have a bunch of people like mutiny. They're just going to go and leave and do their own thing. You're going to lose control over all these people. And so it says this, verse 1 again, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together or against Aaron and said to him, up, or come on, let's go, or come do this. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron, he had been appointed by God to help Moses lead Israel. You go back to Exodus 4, verses 14 to 18. That's where you see that. So, so Aaron was basically like the pastor of the people. But instead of the people trusting Aaron's God-given leadership, the people pridefully and arrogantly thinking that they knew a better way, they demanded that Aaron make some changes in the way he was leading them right in that moment as they're waiting for Moses. 
So it says in verse 2, so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them, uh, brought them to Aaron. So, so Aaron, he says, after they come to him, say, let's go, uh, let's do something. Aaron says, all right, uh, give me all the gold that you've got. Now, now, first of all, where did they get all this gold? Like they're running from slavery. Do you remember where they got all this gold? Yeah, Egypt. You go back to Exodus 12, 35 and 36. We see that God had commanded them to go plunder the Egyptians. Basically, he said, go to your neighbors, ask them for all their gold. They're going to show favor on you, give it to you. And then tomorrow night, I'm going to set you free, and you're going to leave with everybody's cash. And so they leave. This was stuff that God had given to them. And Aaron says, okay, take what God's given to you and give it to me. And then, (laughs) verse 4, which I I don't know why I laughed at this, but it's just weird to me. It says, and he received the gold. He received the gold. Uh, from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a what? A golden calf. Now pause here for a second. Like I get the fact that there's all this pagan worship going on around them. So in that sense, uh, this golden calf, I'm sure it was one of the pagan gods that the people around them were worshiping. So in that sense, it makes sense that they would make a golden calf. But I'm, I'm looking at this thinking, okay, you have all this gold. Millions of people worth of jewelry and gold and you make a little cow out of it. Like, why wouldn't you make something super awesome, cool, big, like a lion or something better? Like, that's basically like having the money to buy something cool like a Maserati, but you choose to buy a Prius instead. It doesn't make sense. And so he, he makes this golden calf, and it says, they said, after the calf has been made, they said, these, pointing at the calf, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So the people basically then, they, they point at the calf, the golden calf that Aaron had just made, and say, perfect, now we can worship. So then, look at how Aaron responds. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before, like when he saw the people liked what they were seeing, liked this golden calf, and now we're saying, okay, good, now we can worship. When Aaron saw that, he built an altar before it, it being what? The golden calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Aaron basically says, okay, tomorrow we're going to worship the Lord. Now, I don't know what you're hearing when you, when you read this, but I, I mean, all week this confused me as I'm studying this in the text. Because here's what sounds like is happening. What sounds like is happening, the people come to Aaron and they're, they're hacked off the way things are going. They say, build us this calf. He builds this golden calf. The, the, the people say, okay, these, these, which I don't really understand the plural there, but they say, this is, this is our God who brought us out of captivity in Egypt. Let's worship him now or worship this thing now. And then it sounds like Aaron walks over here and says, okay, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to the Lord. And I'm thinking, that just doesn't make sense. Like, it just, it doesn't line up with the flow of everything that's going on, what's happening here. And here's what's really happening. What's really happening is the people, they see the golden calf, and they're like, this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. Let's worship. And then Aaron does something really incredible. Aaron, while he's pointing to the calf, says, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to the Lord. While he's pointing to this golden calf that he just fashioned with his own hands, maybe some help from, him, from some other people, he points to that calf and says, tomorrow we're going to worship the Lord. I feel like this is where it gets interesting. Like we know when we're reading this that, that they were not about to worship God. It was a golden stinking calf. And we know that Aaron knew that. 
He had made the calf for crying out loud. Yet, the pastor of the people, while pointing to the calf, says, tomorrow we're going to worship the Lord. Tomorrow we're going to worship God. Instead of leading with his conviction, he caves in to their pressure. Instead of urging the people to wait on the one thing they really needed, which was God, he gave in to their impatience, their pride, their arrogance, and he gave them what they wanted. Listen to me. Ladies, fellas, I, I, I need you to see this. This, what's happening in Exodus 32, this is the same thing that's happening in here. This is the same thing that's happening in, in not just this ministry, but ministries across our community, ministries across our country. This is the same thing that's happening in this church. This is the same thing that's happening in churches across our city, across our country. David Platt, I like how he said it. He's a pastor in Birmingham. He said this, we have created a church culture that revolves around what people want. He doesn't say we've created a culture around, revolving around what people need. He says revolving around what people want. In an attempt to please the crowds, this is what we've become. This is what Aaron was doing. This is what we have done. Platt goes on to say, pastors commit the sin of Aaron today when they stand in front of God's people and attempt to make them feel good about an idolatrous Christianity that loves money, sex, pride, possessions, sports, success, and family more than we love God. And let me just tell you, as I'm studying this this week, I'm hearing those words, I cannot begin to tell you how much conviction I feel over this. We have embraced an idolatrous version of Christianity, and I call it Christianity, but it is not Christianity. It's idolatry that is masquerading as Christianity. We want salvation. We want the promised land, but we don't want God. In our, in our universe, we're still at the center. We're still at the center of our universe because of that we're seeking riches, we're seeking comfort, we're seeking entertainment, we're seeking acceptance and popularity instead of God. And I shared this last week, just the conviction that I've been feeling over some of the things God's been showing me just in my personal time studying the Bible. I think I shared a little bit from Luke 6 last week. In Luke 6, again, same text, verse 20 through 26, listen to what Jesus says. It says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But listen to what he says next. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I'm reading that and I'm thinking, that's me. Listen, that's us. We're rich. We've talked about that before. I mean, most of you in this room fall in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. We're rich. We're full and, and, I mean, physically, like, hunger, we're full. Like, you might be hungry right now because you, you haven't had dinner yet. But, like, you're going to go home. You're going to be full. We eat to oblivion. And it's not just our hunger. Like, we're, we're filled into all these other areas of our life that we're hungry for and hungry in. 
And we're entertained to the max, like laughter upon laughter upon laughter. And, and we're accepted like, like we fit in way too well with culture. And I'm not saying that we should seek poverty or seek hunger or seek uh, sadness or seek fights or, or pick fights or, or go looking for fights with other people. That's not what this is saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we should seek God. The problem is most of us can't seek God. Most of us don't have time to seek God because we're too busy seeking riches and seeking uh, satisfaction for our stomachs, seeking, um, seeking entertainment, seeking popularity, seeking acceptance, all of these other things instead of God. Over and over in Scripture, Jesus, he seems to speak heavily out against the risk-free, comfortable, middle-class, upper-class life. Why, though, does the church, why, though, do we so readily embrace that life? And, And I'm telling you, it's because we have embraced an idolatrous version of Christianity. Conviction hurts. Repentance hurts. Humility hurts. But if you seek God, that's what's going to happen. But again, we don't do that because we're too busy seeking riches, comfort, entertainment, popularity, acceptance. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says, for the, Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, they'll go latching on to, I mean, let's put it in our context, like the podcasts that we listen to are the ones that tickle our ears or itch us where we itch. That's what he's saying here. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That day is here. The conferences are getting bigger and flashier, but the mission field is getting emptier. Sin and immorality that is clearly marked as sin and immorality in Scripture is is becoming accepted. In fact, so many self-professing Christians are even looking at things that are so easily and obviously labeled as sin in Scripture and saying it's not sin. American Christians are getting wealthier and wealthier while the rest of the world gets poorer and poorer. And a lot of that includes our brothers and sisters in Christ who are getting poorer and poorer as we get wealthier and wealthier. And the American church looks, is looking less and less different than the American faithless culture around us. Which forces us to ask the question, are we really worshiping the Lord? Or are we worshiping something else? They claimed, going back to the text, they claimed to be worshiping the Lord. You look at verse 5, and he says, again, uh, he says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. I don't know if you noticed how the Lord is spelled there. It's, it's, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. There's three ways you see the word Lord in Scripture. It's either all lowercases, lowercase L-O-R-D, or it's capital L, lowercase O-R-D, or it's all caps, like here. And when it's all caps, that's referring to Yahweh, like he's using the name of God, which in Hebrew is Yahweh. So right here, he's talking about the, the, the God who is unimaginably huge and powerful and holy. This God that we've been studying throughout this semester. Yahweh, that's the word that's used here, the Lord. In fact, just to kind of put some, some context here on how huge of a deal it is that he uses this word, scribes before that, you know, 
we were just printing these things off on printing presses and whatever we have now. Scribes would have to write these down like over and over to, to copy the scriptures. And when they would get to the word Yahweh in the text, they would stop. Oftentimes they would change pens. They would ceremonially clean themselves before writing the word Yahweh. That's how much reverence and fear they had for the name of God. Understanding his unattainable might and size and holiness. Jews, back in the day, I don't know if this is true now, honestly, I should have checked, but many of them back in the day, they would not even say, when they were reading the scriptures, and they got to the word Yahweh in the Hebrew text, they wouldn't even say it. They said Adonai instead. They gave God another name, Adonai. So much reverence and fear, understanding that this God that he mentions here is is the God of unimaginable might, size, and holiness. So they claim to be worshiping that God. They're pointing at the golden calf, saying, we're going to worship Yahweh. But it's very clear that they weren't. Not just by the fact they're pointing at a golden calf that Aaron had made a couple days earlier, but it's clear that they, that they weren't based on the evidence of what happened after they worshiped. You look at verse 6, it says, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and then they rose to play. Most commentators agree on when it says they, they got up to eat and drink and then they got up to play. Most commentators agree on that meaning that when they ate, they were feasting. They were stuffing themselves. They were indulging in food. And then when it says they, they drank, they were getting drunk and then when it says they got up to play, most commentators agree that they, they were getting up and in, in, indulging in sexually promiscuous activities. I mean, the evidence is clear that they, they obviously weren't worshiping Yahweh because of what they were doing after. Because true worship leads to repentance. It leads to humility. It leads to, to following God. It leads to disciple making. It leads to all that stuff, not this other stuff. And so the question is, what about us? I mean, we say that we're worshiping the Lord. You say that you're worshiping the Lord, but are you? I mean, some of you, you claim to be, but Thursday through Saturday night, you're out of Fry Street. Some of you claim to be worshiping the Lord, but as soon as you walk out of here, you indulge in whatever suits your fancy. Some of you, many of you claim to be worshiping the Lord, but your life is defined by eat, drink, play, not repentance, humility, disciple-making, following Jesus. What evidence is there of your worship being true worship? And you, you read on, verse 7, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Notice when he's talking, when God is now talking to Moses, every time he refers to the Israelites, it's, it's plural, which that may sound like an obvious observation, but he says, he says, verse 7, go down for your people, plural, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves, plural. They, plural, have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, plural. And it just goes on. It's, it's always plural. 
The reason I point that out to you is because it was not an isolated issue among the Israelites. Like pretty much everybody, minus a few, which we see if we would read further on tonight, pretty much everybody was dealing with this issue of idolatry, false worship. And you need to see that because the same is true for us. This is not an isolated issue among us. This is widespread. In fact, it's way more widespread than I think you realize it is. It's affecting me. It's affecting you. It has affected probably, if you're a you know, podcaster, listen to different popular pastors, it's affected most, if not all, of those pastors that you're podcasting and that many of you idolize and celebrate as like your heroes. And you hear what God says next, verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Like, listen to the language that he uses there. He says, let his wrath burn hot against them. Consume them. And what he's getting at is God. He has no tolerance for idol worship. He has no tolerance for unacceptable worship. Like, do you realize there is worship that is unacceptable to him? Like, a lot of probably what we call worship is not acceptable to him. If you don't believe what I'm saying, if you, if you want more examples in Scripture, just go read the, the whole book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. The whole thing is about how unacceptable their worship was to God. The lowercase g, God, that we've constructed, that we've created, just like the golden calf, our version of that doesn't really care how we approach it or how we worship it. But Yahweh, the unimaginably huge, powerful, holy God that actually does exist, can only truly be worshipped on his terms and in his way. So what happened? I mean, God's just said, move back, Moses, so my, my wrath may burn hot against them and I can consume them. What happens next? I mean, it sounds like we've met the end of Israel. It sounds like they're about to be wiped off the planet, destroyed, fresh start. Look what happens, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turning from your, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Listen, there's two things that, that you've got to take away from this tonight. Two things. And the first is this. We need to pray like Moses. We've got to pray like Moses. Look at verse uh, 11 again. It says, but. You've heard me say this a lot if you've been here for a while. The word but, it's. Even though it's one of the smallest words in the English dictionary, it's had one of the greatest impacts on all of history. And we see that here. Israel is moments away from total annihilation. But Moses implored the Lord his God. 
That word implored, it means Moses begged God earnestly. It's the most aggressive form of prayer. It's the most urgent form of prayer, and that's how we need to pray. We need to pray like Moses. We've got to implore God to wake up our hearts and our minds. And listen to what I'm saying. The pronouns are important. I'm not saying their hearts and their minds on campus who don't know Jesus, who aren't here tonight. I'm saying our hearts and our minds. Romans 13, 11 says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Listen, it's our hearts that need to be woken up. We're the ones that have fallen asleep. We're the ones that have been hypnotized into this idolatrous version of Christianity that isn't Christianity at all. And until we're woken up, until we're woken up, our campuses don't stand a chance. And we talk about revival, praying for revival, and our, and our eyes are focused towards campus. Well, if, if they've never been awake ever, like if they've been dead and they're sin the whole time, there is no such thing as reviving them. We're the ones who need the revival. We're the ones who have been alive. Those of you who've put your faith in Christ but then fallen asleep, lost track of him, we need to to be woken up. We need to pray like Moses. Pray that that God, by his grace, would wake us up. There's a dude named Cotton Mather. Um, He lived in the 1600s, 1700s. And uh, he devoted 490 days and nights to praying for revival in New England. Uh, He died in 1729, just, just prior to the First Great Awakening. If you don't know about the first great, great awakening, like tons and tons and tons of people came to know Christ. Guys like George Whitfield, John Wesley were a part of that awakening. But he died just before it began. And, and one pastor in response to that said, where prayer is, revival cannot be far behind. Where prayer is, revival cannot be far behind. And let me just tell you, it's so encouraging tonight, walking into the boiler room, um, Jay Wood, Wag, Austin, and I, myself, I'm not referring to myself in the third person, um, band Austin, the four of us, we went back there and, and uh, every night before we start, everybody who's in the boiler room that's been there for an hour praying beforehand, we all pray together and it was so encouraging to walk in there and see this room like filling up with people. It's encouraging because where prayer is, revival cannot be far behind. And that's what we're praying for this. So we need to pray like Moses. The second takeaway is this, we need a greater Moses. We need a greater Moses. Listen, Moses was the only one standing between God's wrath and Israel. Like, I don't know if you see that in the text, but he was the only one standing between God annihilating Israel. He was the only one able to intercede for Israel and to keep God from opening up this can of divine wrath. And Jesus is our greater Moses. Jesus is the only one holding off God's judgment on us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since or because he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save you. you got to hear this. Jesus is able to save you because he always stands to intercede for you. And here's what I mean. Look at Exodus. Israel had already been saved from Egypt, right? They'd already been set free. God had already made the covenant with them that you're my people if you would just follow me. And then they screwed up. And God says, all right, you screwed up. I'm going to kill you. But Moses stands between God and Israel and, and implores God to not kill Israel. And the reality is Israel was going to screw up again. 
and they were going to screw up again. And over and over, they would continue to screw up. And the same is true for us. Those of you who put your faith in Christ, you've been justified before God. You have been saved. But the only reason that faith in Jesus Christ is able to save you to the uttermost, in other words, save you to the end, save you to completion when it happens, is is because Jesus never stops standing between you and God, interceding on your behalf, imploring God not to annihilate you, not to annihilate me for continually turning our backs on him. We need a greater Moses. You need a greater Moses. If you've not put your faith in Jesus, you think that you can get to heaven without Jesus, you have lost your mind. Your only hope is Jesus. And I say this carefully, your only hope is Jesus not just because of what he did on the cross. Your only hope is Jesus because of what he continues to do today. If it weren't for Jesus, God would see our dumpster full of junk, full of idol worship, full of straight-up disobedience. Jesus' love is a flood of dumpster-moving grace. And our only hope is Jesus. And so let me just tell you, here's what my prayer is for tonight. One, my prayer tonight is that those of you who need to be convicted would be convicted that you're really not worshiping God, Yahweh God, but you're worshiping a God that you've made up. And for some of you, that's what the evidence very clearly points to. Eat, drink, and play. That's your life. And if that's you, listen, you need to to use a word that our culture just loves, and I say that sarcastically, they hate it. But you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sin and turn towards God. You need to humble yourself. You need to be able to openly say, look, I... I, I'm not in the right place. I'm not moving the right direction. I'm not who I'm supposed to be, and I can't do this on my own. Humble yourself, repent. In fact, Acts 2, verse 37, 38-ish, Peter just got done preaching to the people, and the people were cut to the heart, it says. Cut to the heart. Some of you right now, you're being cut to the heart. You can feel it. It's burning on the inside, however you want to describe it. It's happening to you. You know it is, as I'm saying it is right now. And the people came to Peter saying, what do we do? Like it's that feeling, you've got to do something in response. People came to Peter saying, what do we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. In other words, repent, turn away from the old ways and start following Jesus. It's no different than in Romans 10, 9, Paul writing, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. True faith leads to turning away from your sin and following Jesus, repenting and being baptized and going on from there. See, a lot of you, you, you know or you would say, oh yeah, I've confessed with my mouth Jesus is Lord. You say that junk all the time. You say, oh yeah, I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. You might actually believe that God raised him from the dead, but you're, though you might say with your words, yeah, Jesus is Lord, it's not really true yet. That word Lord, you know, the other places you see Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, or just lowercase O-R-D, L-O-R-D, that's a word for master. So to confess Jesus is Lord is to say, I trust him enough to like give my life to him and follow him wherever he goes. Like, that's real faith in Jesus, to follow Jesus. And some of you say, oh, yeah, I believe Jesus, but you're still standing here on the ledge waiting to jump in and actually follow Jesus. You can stand here all night long and say, oh, I, oh yeah, I believe that, that Jesus is going that way, but until you start moving that way, you don't believe. So some of you, that's what your response needs to be. Others of you, my prayers, that you would be convicted that, yeah, you really are worshiping Yahweh. 
that you really are worshiping God. And if that's you, I want to challenge you to continue in that, and I want to challenge you to pull others along with you in that. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.